from all the plastics colliding in the oceans these days starting to form microplastics which the fish find very easily to ingest. A lot of different fish species they're eating plastic debris that's found in the ocean. No one knows what the effects of it is on our food chain A and B on the existing marine creatures whether they'll still be there tomorrow. I mean, a lot of turtles die from eating the debris that's our waste, really, that's thrown into the ocean. I love going to the beach with my son and going for walks down the beach and seeing all of the rubbish on the beach, there's no way I could just leave it. So um, I thought, well, got to be able to do something with it instead of just throwing it into the landfill. So. Um, I thought, why not make some marine creatures out of all of this marine debris that I'm picking up? I'll pick up a bag of rubbish and then when I get home, I'll throw it out on the floor and check it all out. Then I'll go and I'll, I'll collect certain pieces that to me look like certain appendages or bits of sea creatures, join all the bits together and um, hopefully create something unique and artistic out of marine debris. Most people are amazed by the resemblance of the sea creatures, the essence that I seem to be able to capture, the fact that I'm making something out of nothing, if you will, or you know, using a, a worthless product and then turning it into something of beauty. I, I seem to find a lot of thongs. Thongs are probably the number one thing that I pick up off the beach. Um, usually just one of them, so I don't get to wear them, but <laughs> um, yeah, I think people go for a walk down the beach and they leave their thongs at the, you know, at the start of their walk and when they come back because they've had such a great time down the beach, I think they just forget to pick their thongs up, you know, and when the tide comes in they end up in the water or there's ultimate ways that people obviously lose thongs um, because I keep finding them. <laughs> When someone sees one of my pieces, I'm hoping that they will um, identify with that creature, see the plight that it has in the oceans with the marine debris that seems to be increasing these days, and that hopefully create awareness and everyone can have their own little message out of my piece, see their own story and take away with them what they will, ultimately being the awareness of that sea creature in our environment. Well, I'm not, uh, I'm not looking to get into a discussion about trash in the ocean. That's, uh, that wasn't the point of that video. That wasn't why I wanted to show it. Uh, instead, what I, what I wanted us to uh, focus on in that little video is uh, how this gentleman walks along the beach, picks up pieces of trash, and turns them into works of art. Really, I, man, I, I think about that. You could give me all the finest materials in the world and I wouldn't be able to come up with anything that's even remotely artistic like what he's doing there. You know, the fact that he can take things that have been discarded and do something great with them is, is wonderful. And, and I, think, I think it shows his talents and his abilities in ways which probably wouldn't be seen quite the same if he were using 
traditional supplies to create a piece of art. Um, you know, in a way, the, the medium through which he creates art gives me an, an even greater appreciation for, for his skills than, than I maybe would have had otherwise. So that's really what I want us to take from, from that video this morning. And, and the reason I show it is that, that this is not, I think, unlike what we're going to be talking about this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you remember from previous weeks, we've, uh, we've been talking about the glory of God on display through the new covenant of Jesus. And uh, if you remember a couple weeks ago, I, I uh, attempted to use a floodlight and, and a lighter to, to kind of show how the glory of the new covenant far surpasses that of the old. I think your eyesight's probably come back since then. I didn't blind you too much. Um, you know, as, as we talked about that glory shining forth from God, we, we also talked about how we are to be reflectors of that glory. And as the Holy Spirit works within us and he transforms us from the inside out, then, then we do indeed uh, reflect that glory of God from one degree to another, as Paul says. Now, in chapter 3, Paul focused almost exclusively upon the source of that glory, God, his work on the cross, the, the new covenant message that he was proclaiming. In chapter 4, where we've arrived this morning, Paul will shift his focus just a bit and examine us. He will examine the ones who reflect that glory of God. So he's going to use experiences from his own life to, to point out how it's, it's through our humility and our frailty and, and really our weakness that God's glory shines brightly. So, so we'll dive into that this morning. Before we get to that note specifically, we're going to see what, what Paul has to say regarding his own ministry in light of the fact that, that he's a minister of this, of this new covenant that he's called to reflect the glory of God. So follow along with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and this is starting at verse 1. Paul says, therefore, having this ministry, and again, he's, he's linking back to this ministry of the new covenant. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So Paul's connecting back to, to some of what he said earlier in his letter. There, there were people in that day and age who would, who would travel around and they would seek to make a living by, by going to churches and, and giving these wonderful teachings. And, and of course, these, these traveling teachers hoped to be supported and, and paid by the churches when, when they would arrive there as they would go place to place. Now, you can see the temptation that would arise from, from such a, a, a situation. Because these teachers were dependent upon the church members to support them, then the temptation could have been strong to communicate a message that would make everyone feel good. I mean, after all, who would give money to support a traveling teacher who came into town and just made you feel terrible by what they said? And who would support a teacher like that? Who would write a letter of recommendation for that kind of teacher as they got ready to go to the next town to teach? And so, so in an attempt to, 
to survive or even thrive in that kind of setting, these teachers did what they thought they needed to do. And, and they, in essence, softened the, the sharpness of the gospel message. They spoke words that made people feel good rather than, than highlighting truth. Paul uh, accused them earlier of peddling the word of God. He said that at the end of chapter two. So in these first few verses, Paul is proclaiming that he's not like those teachers. He is not like them. He simply preaches the truth of God and he does so with authenticity in his words. Paul's a minister of the glorious new covenant. So he allows that truth to, to speak for itself. The, the gospel which Paul preaches is not twisted or, or diluted or, or changed in any way. So as a result, the believers in Corinth could trust fully in God's words and in Paul's words. I should say God's words through Paul. That's a better way to say it. Paul's telling them, you can trust what I'm saying to you. And, I th and by extension, even though we live some 2,000 years later, we can have that same trust in, in what we read, in the message that Paul is proclaiming. These words that we read and study today are communicating to us the real gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, his work on the cross. They are shining for us the real glory of God. We can, we can trust in that. Paul's giving us that assurance here. But Paul, someone might ask, if, if, if you're truly reflecting the glory of God, this incredible glory of the new covenant through your ministry, then why do some people reject you? Why do people reject your message? It's a valid question, isn't it? I mean, Paul's claiming to show the glory of God in, in, in all its glory. Maybe that's something you and I have asked as a result of, uh, of some of our own experiences. We might word it a little differently. We might say, uh, why did this person in my life reject all that I've attempted to, to tell them about God, to show them about God, to, to, to show them his love and, and all that he's done for them? I mean, we can have those kinds of experiences. Well, look at what Paul says as he goes on in verse three. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Paul brings up the, the, the metaphor of this veil again. He's, he talked about that earlier in chapter 3. This time he's talking about the veil being placed by Satan over the minds of those who don't believe. Uh, you know, the the glory of God ought to be clearly seen and understood by everyone in our world. And in a world devoid of evil, I, I think that would be the case. But we don't live in a world devoid of all evil. And so we live in a world that is under the, the tyranny of Satan and of his forces. And, and as a result, the, the, the God of this age, as Paul calls him, does what he can to keep as many people as possible from, from seeing God's glory for what it is. Satan wants the gospel to be viewed as something worthless as opposed to something that, that contains the fullness of God's glory. 
So, you know, as you and I proclaim the message of the gospel to, to family and, and friends and others in our lives, we do need to remember that there are unseen forces at work. Uh, it might be tempting to think that our, our, our message, uh, you know, what we've proclaimed was rejected because we said something wrong or, or, or we just didn't, we just weren't convincing enough in, in, in what we said or did. And, and Paul would argue that the message was rejected because a veil has been placed there by the God of this age. Now there's value, uh, you know, don't hear me wrong, there's value in being able to clearly articulate the, the message of the gospel, and there's, there's value in practicing how we proclaim the gospel and examining ourselves in that. But we can't neglect the vital step of praying for this veil to be removed, this veil that has been placed there by the God of this age. I mean, and, and remember, Paul said in chapter three, it's only through Christ that the veil is taken away. It's only through Christ, so, so we can't argue this veil away in someone's life. We can't debate it away. Uh, we can't social media post it away. And I would say we can't even truly love it away ourselves. Only Christ can remove this veil that is over a person's mind and heart. It's only in God's power that he's able to do that. And, and and for some of us, this isn't a hypothetical situation, is it? I mean, for some of us, this is, this is a very real reality in our lives. For some of us, we've been praying for someone, maybe for decades, to come to an acceptance of the gospel message. And, you know, I would encourage you this morning to, to persevere in that prayer. Don't give up. Don't, don't throw in the towel. Keep praying that God, that God will do what only God can do to remove that veil that's over a person's mind. And Gordy shared about that last week with, with his grandson, uh, uh, with his sister, right? I mean, let, let, let's continue to proclaim the gospel in word and in deed for sure, but let's also continue to pray for that veil to be removed. And let's remember really what, what Paul is telling us here, the focus of the message that we proclaim is God himself what he has done and what he is doing. And, and you see that in verse uh, five. Paul says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul proclaims Christ and, and he sets himself up as a servant for others. Um, you know, a great way we can serve others in our lives is through consistently praying for them, coming to God's throne on their behalf. Um, and, and what is great about that type of service is that each and every one of us can do it. Uh, there's no certain amount of, of money or, or certain skills or, or certain level of health or, or certain maturity in, in Christ that's needed for that. It only requires that we spend time in prayer, that we come before God praying for others. Um, can't, under, can't underestimate the power of service in that way, praying for others. Uh, I think that's often unappreciated, un, unapplauded, um, but it's, man, it's vital as Paul talks about here. Only Christ can take away this veil that remains. 
you know, if, if a person wanted their reflection of God's glory to be all about themselves, then, then they would do what Paul's opponents did. They would, they would make themselves look good. They would do what was necessary to care for themselves. They'd, they'd present themselves as powerful and influential. They'd, they wouldn't present themselves as a servant of anybody, probably. But if a person wanted their reflection of God's glory to be all about God, then they'd do what Paul did, and, and they would minister in humility, and they would point the spotlight away from themselves and, and back onto God. They'd, they'd present themselves as a servant of everybody, as Paul says here. And in fact, as, as Paul goes on to say, God's power and glory are most clearly displayed through our weakness, not through our strength. God's power and glory are most clearly displayed through our weakness. And he talks about this in a lot of different ways in the following verses here. So in verse 6, we see the first one. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul goes all the way back to the very, very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. When God spoke and began this whole process of creation, he brought light out of darkness. He brought light out of darkness. It wasn't as though God worked with whatever already existed and turned that into light. Nothing already existed other than himself. D darkness is not a, you know, track with me here, darkness isn't a thing. It's not a thing. Darkness is an, a is an absence of a thing. Darkness is absent of light. You, you can't have darkness. It's not a tangible, I mean, we know what it is, right? But it's, it's an absence of light. So you can't use darkness to create light because darkness isn't a real thing. When God spoke, he brought light from nothing. And yes, he brought light out of darkness, but it was out of a void. God brought light. The darkness couldn't take credit, in other words, for the light that came forth from it. It was all by the word of God and, and his power at work in those first moments of creation. The same is true when the glory of God breaks into our lives and, and brings light from the darkness within us. We can't take credit for the salvation in our lives. It's all by the word of God. It's, it's all by his power at work within us that we experience this inward transformation through the Holy Spirit that Paul has been talking about. So, so God's power is seen in that. His glory shines brightly because he brings about light in us out of the darkness that was in us. It's the first way that Paul describes it here. He goes on in verse 7 to, to give us another picture. This is kind of maybe the most famous picture in this passage. Verse 7 says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So the treasure that Paul's referring to here is, is this treasure of the new covenant, this treasure of, of salvation in our lives that comes through the new covenant. That treasure is of immense value and glory. I mean, Paul's been talking about that. 
And standing in contrast to the glory of, of this treasure is the container that is holding the treasure. Now, now, Paul is not saying here that he so despises the treasure that he's keeping it in a worthless container. Now, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, I am the jar of clay. Paul's saying that he himself is the, the common, ordinary, fragile container that somehow holds this incredible treasure of salvation. That's what Paul is saying in that verse there. And because the treasure contains so much more glory than the container, it's obvious what should attract all the attention, right? Rightly so, it would be the treasure, not the container that it's in. Now, you know, for I, I think for different reasons, we as Christians uh, can sometimes think that we have to present ourselves in such a way that, that we make God look good. You know, that uh, we can become worried that if people see our cracks and our impurities, that it's going to detract from the reflection of God's glory within us. Paul's arguing for the complete opposite of that. I mean, what Paul is saying is it's because we are frail and marred and, uh, you know, whatever other descriptions we might give ourselves, that's why the glory of God shines so brightly through us. It becomes even clearer that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And, and, and I'll tell you, man, th this is something that can be very difficult for me as a pastor. I'll, I'll just shoot straight with you. There can be this pressure that I put on myself. And I don't think it's from anybody else. I think it's me putting it on myself that, that I, I have to present myself as someone put together nicely so that God can use me for his glory and his purposes. Man, but the truth is, I'm nothing more than a jar of clay, just like Paul talks about here. And in the minute I begin thinking that God's glory shining through me is, is dependent upon my own abilities or actions or appearance or anything else, I've missed it. I've, uh, I've missed what Paul's saying here. And that, man, it can be tough for me. So, so if you want a way to pray for me, you can, you can pray that, that I would relish my role as a jar of clay, you know, not just say, oh, I guess I'm this jar of clay, you know, but, but truly see the power in that, that God can display his, his glory so brightly in that situation, you know, that I would be excited to see God work through my weaknesses, through my imperfections. You know, I think that's what Paul is landing on here. And it's not just through imperfect people that God's glory shines brightly. does for sure. It's also through imperfect situations, I think, that God's glory shines brightly. You know, perhaps at, at some point in our life, someone tried to sell us on the fact that when we become a Christian, God takes care of all our problems and we'll never have to face any sort of difficulty ever again. Well, listen to what Paul dealt with in his life here. Verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. 
it's, it's, it's through hardships and, and trials in our lives that, that God's glory oftentimes <clears throat> shines the brightest. You know, if the choice were mine, I'm sure I, I wouldn't have chose, chosen a path marked by suffering. I mean, I, I don't think I would. I, I would have never signed up, for example, to be a pastor during a worldwide pandemic. Just wouldn't have done that. And I'm sure, you, I'm sure medical professionals, uh, first responders, school administrators, you know, nursing home directors, uh, you know, just about any, everyone else would maybe say the same kind of thing. But it's in the midst of, of this hardship and in others as well that, that the stage is set for God's glory to shine forth so brightly. And I'm not saying that means I like the hardship. I'm not saying it means that we have to enjoy suffering. But we should trust that not only will God sustain us through those things, but that his glory will shine ever so brightly through those things as well. I mean, Paul says he was afflicted, but he was not crushed because God sustained him in that. Uh, he was perplexed, but he was not in despair because God guided him. He was persecuted, but he was not forsaken because God remained with him. He, he was struck down, but he wasn't destroyed because God protected him. And through all of that, God's glory shone so brightly. What God was doing in Paul's life proclaimed his glory. You know, I, I, at a point in the summer when I think many of us probably hoped to have this whole virus thing behind us, remember when we thought that would happen? we'd get to the summer and it would be good. Man, I, you know, when we get to this point, we may be finding out that things are just getting going. The road before us may not be easy. It, it probably won't be. But God's surpassing power can be trusted. And, and his power is, is made known. His glory is put on incredible display, especially through times of, of hardship or suffering or, or weakness of various kinds. God's glory shines so brightly when he works in those situations. And, and the epitome of this is seen in the death of Jesus on the cross. It was through the death of the Son that the glory of God shone so bright. It was through the death of the Son that life was secured. You know, everything about Jesus' life was done in such a way as to bring glory to God the Father. Uh, you know, Jesus stated that directly in John 8:50. He said, I do not seek my own glory. And, and this is hard to grasp. This is hard for me to grasp due to both the, the complete humanity and complete divinity of Jesus. But in the life of Jesus, we, we see a, a clear example of what we're called to in this life. And, and, and it's this calling that Paul, I think, speaks of in verses 10 through 12. Paul says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. 
when we think about Jesus' death on the cross, uh, what it means for us in this life, uh, there, there's, our, there's two ways, I think two primary ways that you can look at it. And both are correct, by the way. Both of these are, are, are fully correct. The first way to view the cross is according to our sin. So when we look at the cross, when we look at the, the death of Jesus upon the cross, we see one, uh, we see a picture uh, of um, substitutionary atonement. Right? Jesus took our place. He took the punishment of death that, that we deserve. Because Jesus paid the penalty for my sins, I'm made not guilty. I'm justified. I, I, I no longer face that penalty of death. That is one correct way to look at the cross. A second way to view the cross is according to how it informs our Christian life. And, and, and I think this is what Paul has in mind here in these verses. So while I'm set free from death in regard to my sin, I'm also called to die in regard to emulating Christ's example in my own life. So I'm free from death, very much so, but yet I'm called to die, which is what Paul's focusing on here. And, and, and Paul says things in Scripture, other places, um, along these same lines. Romans 6, he says, we've been united with him in a death like his. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, we'll, we'll, we'll get there um, in a few weeks. Jesus died for all, therefore all have died. Now, in none of those passages is the death being talked about strictly a physical death. I mean, that, that can be part of it. There have been many, many believers through the years who have died a martyr's death because of their faith in Jesus. But, but being united with Jesus in his death is, is not limited to physical martyrdom. It's, it's also a, a death to self that, that takes the form of, of rejecting temptation to sin. Um, takes the form of, of serving others ahead of ourselves. It, it takes the form of seeking the glory of God rather than our own glory. So there, there, was, there was a dying to himself, which was the hallmark of Jesus' life. And of course, that dying to himself ultimately led to his physical death upon the cross. So as we die to ourselves through rejecting temptation, serving others, seeking God's glory, we will find that the life of Jesus becomes manifested through us. It, it kind of seems like a paradox there, but as we die to ourselves, the life of Jesus, the glory of God, is proclaimed through us. And so Paul says he, he carries around the death of Jesus in his body so that the life of Jesus would be made known. And so for Paul, you know, that, that dying to himself did extend to physical suffering as well. He talks about that different places in letters that he writes. The glory of God shone so brightly through Paul as he emulated the life of Jesus, a, a life marked by dying to himself. And, and, you know, just as God's glory is shown by bringing light from darkness, you saw that in verse 6, we see here in uh, verse, uh, verses 11 and 12 as well, that God's glory is shown by bringing life from death. That's another one of those things. Death isn't a, a thing. Death is just the absence of life. And so God brings incredible life in the 
out of the void of death, if you want to call it that. So as, as God fills us with himself as, as the result of this new covenant, we are consequently filled with his glory. We are filled with the glory of God, and one of our callings in this life is to make that glory known, to, to shine it everywhere that we go, shine it to all those who are around us every day of our lives. And so the challenge Paul has for us in this passage specifically is that in the midst of that calling, we are to embrace the role that weakness and, and suffering and humility play in that calling. You know, those, those things, weakness, suffering, humility, those aren't things to be avoided at all cost. They're opportunities for the glory of God to shine so brightly through us. I know I, I, I don't naturally think about them that way but I should, and that's what Paul, I think, is leading us to here, to think about them in those ways. Paul says we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's what it's all about. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? God, we're here this morning, and as Paul reminds us, it is true, we are, we are jars of clay. We're fragile, we are, we are broken, we are weak. And God, we are given new life in you. We are filled with your glory. It is, it is nothing but a miracle that a jar of clay can, can contain that type of treasure. God, we praise you for that miracle that you've done in our lives. It's only your work that, that, that gives us that blessing, that, that brings light from darkness and life from death. And so, God, we praise you. That, that's, that's why we're here. That's why we worship. And God, as we, as we remember that and, and worship you because of that, may, may your glory shine through us more and more. God, may we not hinder that glory, but may we, may we welcome how you shine through us. God, and we know that it's, it's not always in ways that are comfortable for us, but would you help us to really to emulate the life of Christ, to die to ourselves fully, that your glory might be brightly proclaimed. God, we give you the praise this morning.